them and departed. I know that was long. Hopefully you track with the story. It starts out uh, with this demon-possessed girl, and as a result of that demon being cast out, Paul and Silas find themselves in prison. Amazingly, a uh, prison break occurs. Uh, the jailer's converted, he and his whole household, and um, at, the, uh, at the hands of the civil leaders and the, the mob, they were beaten, disgraced, and dismantled, but the end of the, re- uh, the resolution of the story is that they're, they're pardoned, apologized to, and they leave Philippi in quote-unquote peace, encouraging the brothers. So, Let's pray this morning, ask for the Lord to help us in his word this morning, and um, we'll rely upon him instead of me. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, so I, I kind of went back and I looked at like the last four weeks and uh, sort of the different, um, just main point, main topic, main idea of the last four weeks are sort of now being um, rolled into one one message, like if you want to think about it that way, it is I'm asking you to synthesize what I, what I have told you that I think God is asking you to do in these different situations by his word, okay? And so that has to do with what does it mean to really have God's word applied all the way throughout your life, not just in some little spiritual kiddie pool on the proverbial deck, right? And we talked about being set free, but you're free to serve. Like, you're free to give up your freedoms for the, the betterment of other people. And we talked about how sometimes that runs into different places, like especially with the government and how do we handle those kinds of situations. And so last week we talked about um, providence and God's will and following that and trying to discern that. And here we have this week all of those things coming together. And so I'm asking you to synthesize those things so that, like James tells us, that you're not just hearers of the word only, but doers also, Okay. Because you can hear and understand and believe and rah-rah, but if it doesn't actually result in your doing the word, it says you deceived yourself. You, you've come and you've taken all the proverbial steps to, to do what's right, except for actually doing what's right. And so um, I think our, our biggest challenge is not that we are doing things in an imperfect way. It's not like I went out there, I gave it the old college try, and I didn't do it good enough, and so that's kind of discouraging for me. Like, I thought God wanted me to do it perfectly, and um, it just didn't, it didn't go as well as I'd hoped it. Or, or I'm just human, and I, so I failed at that task. I, that's totally acceptable. In fact, that's the most that you could be asked to do. What I really think is our challenge is not doing anything, but telling ourselves that we've really done something. Not doing anything but really feeling like because we understood something, because it's been, it's been said in a way that like we, we agree with, that we're like, yeah, that's right, that's good, I agree with that, I, I even think that's what God says, and we convince ourselves that that is the same as doing that thing. And so I want to ask you this morning, sort of an open-ended, it's rhetorical, but if you have an answer that maybe you could shout out, I'm fine with that, what is Christian duty? What is Christian duty? Or, or what is duty in general, if you want to kind of think about it that way? And so we, we think that maybe uh, being a Christian is, is primarily about like our salvation. And once we're good, then we're good. And yet, there's some kind of uh, obligations that come along with that. And so when we think about duty, it's not that, it's not that duty has to do with rules. It has, it, its duty is, has to do with responsibilities or appropriate actions within a given uh, scenario or a given um, position that you have, right? So like my, my duty as a father is obligated uh, 
by, by that position, by virtue of the fact that I'm uh, the provider of the family, I got to pay for dinner when we go out to eat, right? Like that's a duty, but there's no, there's no rule book for dads that says, if you do this or you must do this to be a dad, right? It's just that I am a dad, therefore I must do that. I have to fill that duty. Does that make sense? Okay, so in the same way, being a Christian comes with some duties, okay? And here's where the big problem is with that deception. Okay, I know something, I agree with something, but I'm not actually doing it. And we convince ourselves that that's enough. Jesus says, that's not enough. Okay? And, he, and, and here's where he says that. In Luke chapter 17, he's, he's giving the point that there's no service that you do, that you offer to God in a way that you can come to him and say, see, I've added something to you. Like, it, without me, you've not, you've not had this thing. You would have been missing a, a proverbial puzzle piece, right? And so there's nobody that can say that to God. But, but Jesus puts it in the realm of, of a, a servant and a master so that we can kind of comprehend what we are in, in serving God, in fulfilling our duty to God. So in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 7, he says, Will any of you, if you had a servant who was plowing or they were keeping sheep, say to him as he came in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. So he said, if you have somebody that's working for you, they're serving you, right? You're, the, you're in the boss, and they're the servant in this role. They come in from their hard work, and you, being the master, invite them to come and recline at the table. He says, no, that wouldn't be the first thing that you do. You would rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. Okay? So he said, no, what you would do is if a servant came in and they were, their job, their duty was to serve you, you would say, no, you come serve me. You make me dinner because I'm the master and you're the servant. And uh, you need to prepare that. And they serve while you eat and drink. And afterward, will you eat and drink? So he, he, he asks his own rhetorical question. So if you ask the servant to do that, would you not then eat and drink? Well, of course you would if the servant was doing what he was supposed to do, right? So there's the answer to that rhetorical question. Would you not afterward eat and drink? Yes, you would. Now, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Okay? That's, that's the question. Would you thank a servant for doing what the servant should do anyway? Okay? He says, so you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, he's saying this. You, you don't, when the, when the servant comes in and he says, I've been working in the field all day, and now you want me to come make dinner for you? And then he does make dinner for you. Now, if he comes to you and goes, look, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing everything here, you know? What's, 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 the, what's the deal? you would go, well, you're doing what your role is, right? That's your duty. And that's what Jesus' illustration is about. He's saying, the servant doesn't go, look at what I've done. You owe me an attaboy. He says, you've only done what you were asked to do. Now, if you think about that and apply that across the board to what is our Christian duty and that we don't add anything to God. So when we are obedient and when we do things or when we venture out into um, the kingdom and try to advance the kingdom, we do dangerous things, okay? We don't go to God, see what I did, right? He says, you've only done what you ought to do as a servant in the kingdom, okay? Now, I have this um, chess piece up here. Um, how many of you guys are chess players? Or, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's an acquired taste, right? How many of you guys are more checkers players? <laughs> okay, checkers players are, uh, uh, it's fine. You don't have to plan that far ahead. All the pieces are the same, right? If, if you lose one checkered piece, 
yeah, it's the same as the next guy, right? And if that one gets to the other side of the board, you get, you get a king, right? So anybody can be better or be the best. Everybody can get to the top spot on the checkerboard. You with me, right? But in chess, that's not true. In chess, there's assigned values to each one of the pieces, and they have assigned roles, appropriate things that they can do. Now, if you move things out of, out of order, or you, you do things that are not within the, the set duties of that role, well, not only are you cheating, but like um, you inappropriately value what, the, what that piece is meant to do. And if you become fixated on that thing, and you try to operate within a strategy that really the, the knight is the most important thing. Like, I got to make sure the knight is protected at all costs. Well, you're going to lose that battle, are you not? Yes, you will. Okay? Right? The king is the most important piece. The king is the most important piece. Now, the queen has the most power, though. Like, she can, she can move across the board any direction she wants. And, and so, if you want to think about this, and don't press the metaphor too far, but Jesus is king, and his bride, the church, is the queen. And she's meant to do a lot of things. And we're supposed to fill these roles, these duties, and, and we're obligated to them. And so I want you to think about that as we talk today about what is our, what is our duty in different situations. And how does this come to be our strategy? Because your strategy is not to try to figure out how to win the chess game. Your strategy and your duty is just to do exactly what you can do. So if you're the knight, like, you can move in and out. That's what you can do, right? If you're a bishop, you can move in a diagonal, okay? So here, here's what it is. You have been given a duty. That's all you must do, regardless of whatever situation you find yourself in. Because though you might be surrounded, right? You might, the situation might look dire. And if you're a good chess player, that's exactly when you know you've got the other person where you want them. You're going to invite them in, and you're going to reverse everything. And at the end of the day, it's checkmate for the guy that doesn't have a strategy that can't see ahead several steps. And there's only one person that has that strategy. That's God, right? And so you must rely on him and do your duty trusting in him. Now, say this for me. Now with conviction. Okay. If that's true, then you have a duty to, to, that no matter where you are, what situation you are in, this informs what you should do and how you should do it. If Jesus is Lord, that means he's supreme over other masters, over other situations. If that's true, then regardless of whatever situation I'm in, I need to ask the question, if Jesus is Lord over this situation as well, how should I, what's my duty here, okay? And so that's essentially walking through. And you also need to know this, that worship is service, so, so when you think, what do I do? What's my role? What's my job? How do I go about doing that? And in Romans 12, 1, you're told your whole life, no matter what, is a living sacrifice, and this is your duty. This is your act of worship. So whatever it is you're doing, you are rendering that service to God. You're coming in from the field, and he says, prepare me dinner. And you say, that's what I got to do. That's my job. That's my service, and that is worship. Now, when you think of worship, you think, what we just did, singing maybe. But that's, your whole life is worship. The question is, from the last statement, which is Jesus is Lord, are you, are you worshiping like that's true or are you serving something else? Is your duty reflecting that you have overvalued some other piece, that you're um, discouraged in some situation and so you're not really living that out? And my intro is going way too long, so I'm going to move on <laughs> because we got a lot of text to cover, okay? So last week we talked about 
trusting God. You don't have to lay the plan. You just walk the plan. You trust him in faith, walking each step. And he has done that for Paul and Silas. He's led them to Macedonia. And here they encounter, after being there for several days, they go outside the city. But it says, as they were going to that place of prayer. So before they ever meet Lydia, this is what happened. It's like a meanwhile, back at the, land, back at the ranch kind of thing, okay? So it says, while we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And it brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And so she followed us, or she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned. He said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Now this ties like directly into last week, because if you think about it, we think being able to predict the future would be advantageous right, to you, right? And if you've ever watched Back to the Future, the foremost documentary on time travel, right, you know, there's some advantage. If you go to the future, right, you just get the sports almanac, you come back, you predict the next 20 World Series, and you're a quadrillionaire, right? Okay, that's a joke, guys. Okay, this girl, um, we're told that she has a spirit of divination, and she is getting her owners much gain through, through fortune telling. And we think that she is speaking prophetically. And so we need to really be careful here on how we define prophecy. So first of all, with Paul and Silas, she's following them around. She's declaring something true about them. But Paul and Silas is this dynamic duo of Paul, who is a preacher. Uh, he's an apostle. But Silas, who is considered a leader in the Jerusalem church, he was recognized also as a prophet. Now think about that. Silas is recognized as a prophet of God. He didn't know where they were supposed to go when they were looking for the right place to go in the last few verses, right? He didn't know what was going to happen when they arrived there, right? So prophecy is not something, it's not like a skill or an ability you can call on when you need it or when you want it, right? It's not at your disposal. And truthfully, God is the only one who knows the future. And so he's the only one that can prophesy or give the ability to prophesy in truth. So what's happening here? we might be um, misled to believe that somebody in touch with the demonic realm has the, also the ability to see the future. And I'll guarantee you, I promise you, that Satan does not know the future. What you have is very intelligent, very experienced demonic beings that have access to private things, right? They can... They could be with you, they could be around you, they could hear a conversation, anything you say out loud, and that kind of access to that kind of information could lead you to believe that they know the future when indeed they don't, okay? Now, what this girl is likely doing is she's, she's enslaved to this spirit, and it's called, if you had the King James, it says the spirit of a python or pythos. So it's kind of interesting. So, so snakes were thought to have wisdom and perhaps be able to see the future, but also there is... Um, uh, a temple right near uh, Philippi, which was um, called the, for, for the Oracle of Delphi. It, this is historical. You don't need to care about it at all, but you do need to care about it for this reason. It's likely that this girl is tied to that idea, and everybody in Philippi okay, knows that she's speaking on behalf of Apollos, which is small g, God. Okay? But in their mind, Apollos is the best. Apollos is the Yahweh, high God, but he's not. 
But in their mind, and for all they know, she speaks oracles for that God. Now, what is she? She's following them around, and she's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they're declaring a way of salvation to you. Now, in the minds of everybody else who don't know Paul and Silas and the message they're bringing, they're thinking, well, yeah, they're, so they're also representatives of Apollos, not Yahweh. Now, this would be frustrating because it's kind of like when somebody ruins your punchline, like you start telling a joke and then they, they ruin your punchline. That's, she's essentially doing that. She, she's, she's outing what they want to be able to say and ruining it with her own affiliations, okay? Now, this seems like, okay, well, I, I see that's frustrating. There's also maybe like a weird factor here so that she, she might be doing this with ventriloquism. So you could see how being followed around by like a demon-possessed ventriloquist girl saying something and ruining your punchline would be very annoying, okay? Right, okay. So that's what's happening here. And what she's saying is true. And she's saying these things at the, um, by, by message or by way of very intelligent, intuitive beings. And so... Um, this girl is thought to possess a special knowledge. And so Paul's response to this is to rebuke the spirit and to cast it out. And so the, the, the girl, though, you need to see that she's a slave on two different levels. She, she serves a master who owns her, and she also is a slave also to, to, to these demonic forces, to these uh, demons that are allowing her or, or speaking some kinds of things to her. And so um, if you have not yet, you should go see The Sound of Freedom, uh, which is a movie that's out right now. It's about child trafficking. And I, I say that for two reasons. One is because um, it's, it, is, it is exposing what's not said in the, uh, in the, in the in, it's like the open secret. And the problem is, is well, it's many, many faceted. It's not just that there's, there's children that are being trafficked. At the end of the movie, it begins to play the statistics. And what's most disheartening is it says this, there's, there's more people in slavery today than at any time ever. And it's like something to the tune of just like, I'll say $10 billion just in the U.S. Okay? So think about that. That slavery is tied not just to the, the most kind of evil that you could portray on the most innocent of society, but in addition to that, it's for the purpose of profit. And now you might get some sense of what's happening here of this girl. She's, she's not really had her own free will expressed. She's at the behest of these demons and her own masters who are just abusing her and using her for um, profit. And so scripture exposes really the same thing to us, that all our depths of bondage are not different than her. We look at this situation and think she's really bad off. And you are in the same situation without Christ. It, it says, you are in bondage, not just to, um, to sin as a generic idea, but you're in bondage to your own desires. You, you, you pursue those things, and though you think that they're, they're something that benefit you, they're often the things that also cost you the most by pursuing your desires. And we think that pursuit of our desires is what is freedom. We think, I'm free to go and do that thing. But you are also bound then to that action, right? And Sinful behaviors and patterns beget further sinful behaviors and patterns. And so you're slave to your own addictive uh, fulfillment of your sinful behaviors. And so you're a slave at that level, and you're a slave at the behavioral level, and you're also a slave then at the spiritual level, right? That you are slave to 
what you're, you're called. At that moment, your father will be Satan because you practice the things that he leads you to do. And so out of your own temptation and desire, you follow those things. And so you are a slave to sin and eventually to death. So without Christ, we have no freedom. We have a hopeless kind of bondage. But in Christ, all of those things are reversed. We're called sons and heirs. We're translated from the kingdom of light to darkness. We have a new heart and a new spirit and a new will and new desires and the ability, the freedom to obey things that do please God. Okay? So all of that's reversed in Christ. Now, it says, when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, hope of gain is important there, right? Their hope of gain was gone. They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, okay? So they kind of go to like the leading, you can think about it, a chamber of commerce, right? They bring them there and they uh, drag them there. And then they bring them, like if you want to think about like the city council, like the, the more higher ups, the magistrates. And they said, these men are Jews and they're practicing um, things in our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so the crowd joined in attacking them. So it first started out with just these slave owners. They kind of incite the, the, uh, the chamber of commerce. They go to the city council, and now they've kind of stirred up a mob, right? Uh, uh. And so what they do is they tear their garments off so they're naked, right? And they gave orders to beat them with rods. And so they're beaten mercilessly. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering that the jailer keeps them safely, which is sort of an ironic word there, Right? The idea is there, he's keeping them securely. He's, he's keeping them without the ability to escape. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, right? It's not the lockup overnight. It's the inner prison. And he fastens them in stocks, which is like this wooden thing they put your ankles in so that you couldn't run even if you wanted to, okay? So just get the sense of what's happening here. We know what their real problem is. Their real problem is that their hope of gain by uh, possession of this girl by bondage of this girl, has been lost. But that's not, their real, that's not the complaint they bring to the, the people, right? They bring some other complaint. And all of their complaints is because uh, they have set their hope on something of gain, something that their heart desired, not something good, but their own gain at the cost of this other girl. And so they utilize uh, a very familiar thing through um, degrading and demeaning and defaming these uh, the Paul and Silas, and they also go to division. Now, this is where I'm just unapologetically going to get political, okay? So, <laughs> I don't care, all right? So, listen, this is, it, it's not that, it's a, it's, it's a strategy. And it's a strategy that's employed by Satan. Why? To discourage and to disparage. Because he thinks that if he can get you to give up, that you will. And oftentimes it works. Okay. So if that's true, what they do is they defame them first. They, they give a lying testimony about what's happened. They use division to say, we're Romans. We're the good guys here. And these guys are the Jews. And they're coming in. And they're, they're advocating customs that are not lawful. They don't identify what those are. And customs are not part of law. Okay? But they use the veneer of law to bring uh, misfortune on Paul and Silas. Okay? And they, they, they do that, and they defame their reputation, and um, they, they use division. They incite the mob. They strip them naked, and so they embarrass them, right? They, they, they cause them uh, great embarrassment by being naked in public, and then they beat them. And just by way of doing all these things, they're hoping that they'll just give up. 
They want to get some kind, they want to get their pound of flesh, but also they just want them to go away. And they want to uh, feel good about, well, their, their position. Okay, now, over the last few years, there, there have been lots of ways that this has come to, not just you as individuals, but us as, as church, right? And, and specifically here in America, it was like the moment that there began to be laws, supposed laws that we couldn't do things, that you've like literally had your, your rights enshrined in the Constitution and at the fear of public opinion or at the fear of being crossways with the local authorities, churches decided to cede the authority that Jesus is Lord to someone else. Through discouragement, through defamation, through despair, all of those things caused people to make decisions that they otherwise would not have made. Now, this hasn't changed from when it happened to Paul and Silas because it's still happening today. Are people still, are, are still people pursuing desires that are, that are not good? Yeah, absolutely. Do they do it at the cost of other people? Yes, absolutely. Are they willing to step on you to get what they want? Yes, okay? So they're willing to do all of these things. They're um, creating um, rivalries between people. They sow division and discord between the church and, and everybody else. We're all following the rules and you're not. And so now there's a, there's a level of hatred that ought not be there. And it really doesn't exist except for the fact that you're othering someone else, right? And so all of these tactics are employed. They're strategies of the devil to discourage you. And what's more is that we're, we're called not to succumb to them, but to apply Jesus as Lord to every area of our lives, okay? Now, my hope is, after I've stepped all over everyone's toes, to also infuse your spine with a little bit of steel so that walking forward for whatever comes next, you're ready, right? Because we don't want another situation like we've just walked through. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So just think about the scenario of being the little lowly pawn amidst a sea of much greater, like more powerful chess pieces. And it seems like that's a bad situation, but all God has done is set the stage for every eye to be on these weak, crushed people, right? He's put the spotlight on them. It says the other prisoners were listening to them. So here, this, that you are a witness. You are a witness, so whatever you do is your witness. So what are you witnessing to? Are you, are you witnessing that Jesus is Lord, even in this situation, or are you not? And the question is, in your witness, are you whining or are you worshiping? Okay? You, you know what it is to, to whine. Like sometimes, maybe you know this person. This person happens to be my kids sometimes, right? They come, they're like, like, okay, what's wrong? They want you to ask what's wrong. Well, they want you to know that they're in a situation that they don't want to be in, and you're supposed to fix it. Now, the problem with that is that we're using the situation as the fuel for our response instead of the other way around. Okay? Our response is already a set deal. We should worship. Okay? Period. Why? Because worship is service. And they're most literally doing it in two ways. It says they were praying and singing. There's no and there. They were praying, singing. They were praying, singing. So that whatever it is they had to say to God, it was not a please get me out of this situation. It was still 
God, you're worthy. God, we love you. Whatever it was they were singing, it was enough that the other prisoners heard this. If you sing and worship only when things are good, what is that saying about your witness? It's, it tells me what you believe, what your actual heart desire is. You want things to be good. And when they're good, you're willing to worship. But if when they're bad, you're not willing to worship. Well, that tells me also what your hope is in and what your real desires are. It's for you. You've taken your little pawn piece and said, this is the most important piece on the board. And I don't care about anybody else. So when I'm in a situation I don't like, I'm not going to do what I ought to do. But it's your Christian duty to do so. So what they're doing is fulfilling that. They're fulfilling their Christian duty. We need to make a designation here, okay? And we'll, we'll get more into that at other places because this is like Paul's calling card, right? Whatever he, wherever he goes, troubles, troubles happen, right? There's a distinction to be made between persecution and just trouble. Everyone, everyone has trouble. There's nothing distinctly Christian about trouble, about sickness, about problems. There's nothing specifically Christian about those things. But if everyone shares the same experience in trouble and trial, you should still be using those things as a way to witness for Christ. Like, that's the distinction. So, so there are times where if you are in trouble for the name of Christ or for the sake of the gospel, that's persecution. Like, you, you brought trouble on yourself for doing what was right. That's persecution. But just like if you get sick, that's not persecution. That's trouble. But that doesn't mean that you are any less um, obligated or, or duty-bound to, uh, to, to endure that thing, to go through that trouble in worship, not in whining, as your service for Christ. It gives you the opportunity in that moment, regardless of whether it's persecution or just trouble in general, and the spotlight is on you. Why? Because other prisoners are listening to what you're doing. Hear it this way, they're watching you. And so if you're a whiner, or you're saying, you know what, once it's bad, Jesus isn't Lord anymore. I, I don't go to him. I don't still honor him. Well, that's all the testimony and witness that you're giving. So, Paul would later write from prison to the Philippians, to the Thessalonians, which is just down the road from here. He tells them, rejoice always, right? He, t- he said that in both letters, in Thessalonians and Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice, right? Here's your command, to be happy, to be joyful in Christ. Pray continually, right? Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is God's will for you. He, he doesn't conclude by the fact that they've brought some uh, a beating on themselves, that they find themselves in prison. He doesn't say, we must have gotten outside of God's will. He says, in fact, if you're in those circumstances, that's exactly where you're meant to be. So they're praying and singing and they're glorifying God in their whole life. Wherever they're at, that's where they're going to do it. The important thing is not just that they're singing because they're in prison. It's that they're singing regardless of whether they're in prison or not. Okay? It's got to apply across the board no matter what. It's not just that God can use troubles, difficulties, trials. It's that he is using those things. In fact, that's one of the main things that he uses as a witness and a testimony to other people. Specifically, how we go through trials. Moving on. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake. 
And so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew a sword and he was about to kill himself. Okay, you know, just from previous chapters, the, the guys that were in charge of keeping Peter, remember Herod had put 12 uh, soldiers around him and they all died because of Peter's escape, okay? Now, the, the, the jailer, he's responsible for not just the lives of the people that are there, but their, um, their punishment, okay? So he's, he's, he's been entrusted to enact their punishment on them, and if he doesn't do that, then he's liable for that, okay? So he concludes from the fact that the doors are open, it's curtains for me, okay? I'm either going to be in jail forever or I'll be killed, okay? So he draws a sword. He's about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here, here. Now, this is even more curious than the fact that Paul doesn't decide to escape with Silas. He says, we are all here. It's not just them that stayed. They somehow convinced all the rest of the prisoners to stay as well. Just file that in your back pocket for a second, okay? Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he's trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. So here we are, the jailbreak that wasn't. Okay? Like... The doors are open. I mean, everything's set up. You and I definitely conclude it's my time to make a quick exit, right? Everything is lined up. Why didn't they run? Why didn't they escape? (laughs) When we have these kinds of opportunity, especially if we find ourselves in a situation like unjustly, we immediately ask the question, what do I need to do to get out of here, right? Or or, I'm leaving, right? I'm just, it's just a matter of when. And the question is not, what do I need to do to get out of here? Is what can I do while I'm in here? Okay? And they're still in here. The surprising answer always is to do your best, to do your duty. Everything, if, you, if everything you do is a witness to Christ, then everything you do ought to be a witness to Christ, that Christ is Lord. So I just want you to think about a couple of things that Paul must have already thought of. If we escape we'll still be wanted men, like, and, and who knows what kind of, like, problems that's going to cause us down the road if we just are jailbirds forever, and so let's, let's not escape, let's not bring reproach on the name of Christ, we haven't really got to set that straight, right, the demon girl had been kind of giving them a bad reputation, and he must have already thought through all of these things to be able to conclude at this moment, what's most important is I've been put here as a witness, not just to the other prisoners, because we've done that, but this, this jailkeeper, this jailer, his fate is tied to the prisoners. If they escape, right, he's toast. And sort of, if you, if you look at this narrative, he's also responsible to his master, which at this moment is the government, right? They, he bears the power of the sword. He's been given a specific charge to keep these men securely. Paul, knowing that, is willing to give himself over to whatever fate lies to him to to be able to witness to a a better king and a higher master. And that's exactly what he does. So there's this sort of irony level of the gospel thing playing out as the gospel plays out. That the, the punishment that was due for Paul and which would have rightly fell on the prison or the jailer's head, okay? He decides not to do that. And the result of that is that the jailer comes in and says, 
what must I do to be saved? So he must have either heard them singing or knows why they're there. And a life for a life is essentially what he, he wants to know. I, you've, you've essentially saved my physical life. What must I do to be saved? We don't usually get that kind of invitation. But if you do, right, you know the answer, okay? <laughs> so he tells them, right, believe in the Lord Jesus. It says that he, um, he brought them out. And I uh, said, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and all of your household. Now, this is, this is important because it was also said to Lydia. And some uh, specific denominations use this as like a way to think of, if you're saved, so too is everybody in your house, like your kids. That's, that's not uh, an accurate way to think about this. And the reason I say that is because verse 32 says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and... To the rest of them, because the word has to be spoken to them so that they might also believe. It's not you believe and everybody's in, okay? It's you believe and they must also believe, but they all get the benefit of hearing the word. And that's why Peter says that this promise is for you and for all who are far off, those who are near and those who are far away, because they get the benefit now of hearing it, okay? And so he speaks the word of the Lord to them. They all believe, though. And he took them that same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. And isn't that like an incredible act of mercy now from this guy who was in charge of making sure that they were as miserable as they could possibly be? Now he takes them into his own house, he washes their wounds, and he's baptized. It's kind of a one-for-one, right? (laughs) You wash me, and I wash you. And he and all his family are baptized. This is still middle of the night. Then he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. If you can switch that slide for me. Right? Paul recognizes that he is a witness no matter where he goes, that he's given this opportunity. He's been propped up literally on a platform for this specific purpose. And this specific purpose is that he might be a witness to this jailkeeper. And he goes immediately and he's baptized. Right? That's just the, the natural progression of things. Unless something is keeping you, like literally physically, you should be baptized. It's a step of obedience. It's, an, it's, a, it's a sign of the covenant, of the new covenant. So that's my plug. If you've not been baptized, come and see me, okay? He didn't even wait. No waiting. We're doing this now, okay? But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go and therefore come out now and go in peace. Okay, so um, what you missed in the story here is that they, the prison keeper is liable, right, for their well-being, and they must be found in the same condition they were left in. So guess what that means? That means Paul and Silas have to go back into the prison. They go back in the, the prison. After they save, baptize, get fed, wash wounds, they go back into the prison. They return. Okay, so the jailer has this duty to his master. He's got an obligation, and he must serve um, he must serve that master with integrity, but he, he must do it in light of the truth that Christ is Lord. And the truth is, no matter what you do, if you're a plumber or you're a tech programmer or you work for the government, it doesn't matter. You, you, everyone has a boss, okay? But you serve that boss as boss and Christ is Lord. And you do it with integrity so that whenever you can, And whatever it is that you're doing, you're rendering that service as to Christ. 
And that's why it says, render to Caesars what's Caesars and to God what's God's. And you owe him your highest allegiance. And if there's some other lesser duty that you can serve this other people that you're obligated to, you do that. It's not, it's not okay to say, oh, I'm serving Jesus as Lord, and so I'm, I'm just being a total anarchist. That's not, that's not what we're called to do. What we are called to do is make the, the right distinction between Christ as Lord and Caesar is not. Okay? And he's obligated, as his position, as his role, is to carry out what he's been charged to do. Jesus says no one can have two masters, right? There may be times and places and ways where you must serve that lesser master, but you always serve Jesus as the highest master. And so you do your duty in light of Christ. And that's, I think, what's happening in this moment. But they go, the magistrates come, they say, hey, uh, they send word basically by police courier that they're able to come out. And Paul said to them, but they have beaten us publicly. They did this uncondemned, and we are men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? Let them come themselves and take us, take us out. So this is where we, um, where we can see how Paul is fulfilling his duty as not just a, a Christian, not just as one who serves Christ as Lord, but now he sees the opportunity to also be politically informed in a way that allows him to assert his, his freedoms, his rights to make a point that Jesus is Lord, okay? And he's going to do this in a very a, a wise way, okay? So here's what happens. It says, the police reported these words to the magistrates. Essentially this. They imprisoned us falsely. They did this publicly. They can come and tell us themselves if they want us to leave, okay? And so they go and they report these things to the magistrates. But they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. And so they came and they apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Okay? It says they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. Now, think about this. Just First, you need to think about it in their context, and, now, and then I want you to think about it in ours. They're not afraid of Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are not in a position of power. Who is in position of power is, is the, the Roman Caesar. He's, he's the one they're really afraid of. And there's a set of rights that go along with being a Roman citizen that are um, they're guaranteed with or without the Caesar saying so. This is what they're afraid of. They, they've actually disobeyed the master that they think is the highest master. And they've seen their heir. So that's an important point. Okay? Now, how, do, how does that help you and help us? Okay, so our duty is to uphold the standard that Christ is Lord no matter what, and to recognize the actual, the actual power in the world. Your Christian duty falls to Christ, okay? Now, what is your American duty? And what is your, where your American rights come from? Okay, well, those are enshrined in the Constitution. They, they apply no matter what. They apply whether, whether Biden's president or not, whether Trump is president or not. Okay, so if that's true, availing yourself of your rights is not to sin. It is to say that Caesar is not Lord. Christ is Lord. And there's no contradiction in availing yourself of rights that you are guaranteed by a higher power. The president is not the highest power in the United States. Right? Your, your powers, if you want to think about it that way, your duties are, are enshrined in the Constitution. Okay? 
So your role as an American citizen, so long as it's given to you, is to stand on those, regardless of what's said, until the contradiction is apparent or until they imprison you and don't let you. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to be extra politically charged, but it is what it is. Because if you're not just applying this truth to the kiddie pool on the deck, it needs to go everywhere that you go. So that, why? Why is this important? Because the other prisoners are listening. So your witness at every moment is saying that whether you believe that Caesar is Lord or Jesus is. So that as Caesar tries to encroach on the church, it's going to happen again and again and again so long as you, you lay down. And I say you is the proverbial we because we're called not to do that. I know that sounds foreign to our ears, but, it's, but it's, it shouldn't be. Christ is Lord over everything, especially over his people. His church, okay? No one can tell you otherwise. Paul sees that his chains are not for, he, he never calls himself a prisoner of Caesar. He never, he never calls himself a prisoner of the local governor. He never, he never even recognizes that level of authority. He always goes to the top. And he always sees a greater purpose in whatever problem that he's in. So that he says things like, my chains have served to advance the gospel, or I'm in chains for you, or I'm being poured out like a drink offering for you. It's always for someone else, and it's always for Christ. It's always because Christ is king, because God is sovereign, because he's in charge. He has me whether I'm in good or whether I'm in bad, and I trust that. He never says, the problem is really that the Caesar's doing things that the Caesar ought not to do. He always says, I'm right where I'm supposed to be because this is where God has put me. So that even my chains have served to advance the cause of the gospel. And then he adds one more, so that you, the church, would have courage. He says, so that you won't fear that the bad things that happen to you are really bad things. And then he goes on, further to say, well, that's why to live is Christ and to die is gain. The worst that you can do to me is give me Christ in person. I'm all for it. Okay, well, if I stay here, now you're at my mercy because it's all for Christ. So if you, if you see that in every situation, then Christ can easily be Lord no matter where you are. So they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them. They encouraged them with this story. I don't know what this is going to look for you guys. Like, who knows politically what happened? I mean, they, they forced the magistrates to come to escort them out of prison. I mean, there's some sort of reparation in that. But the truth is, whether or not God vindicates you here, he's ultimately going to vindicate himself. Why? Because he's the most important chess piece, not you. Okay? But if you're carrying out your duty, he will always get his. And you don't have to worry and strategize about how you can help him do that. He's going to do it. All you must do is what you must do, which is worship, service, duty. You don't have to win the war. You just have to live like it's true that Christ is Lord. And all the other things will work themselves out, believe it or not. Now, not the prophet, not the son of a prophet, okay? If, if you just look at the political situation we've come through, so long as 
we, we have the rights of, of guaranteed freedom of religion that we are able to serve with open conscience Christ, they're going to try to squash that with the same tactics because Satan doesn't want the church to triumph, okay? So discouragement and despair and def- defamation, all of those things are going to be tactics and othering, right, causing division. And you can't care more about those things than you do about the truth that Christ is Lord. Infuse that into your spine. We, we stand together in the, the truth that that's really the case. It, and we don't have to worry about vindicating ourselves because Christ will vindicate the church, his people. Amen?